You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 111, Collaborating Against Human Trafficking. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, as a big part of our our goal in doing those three things is talking with folks around the country and around the world who are experts in particular areas and have done the research and have put together the resources that will help all of us to understand this issue more effectively and figure out what we can do to be a voice and make a difference. And today's guest I know is going to provide a wonderful framework for that and someone you've known for quite a while. Well, I'm very excited to have Kirsten Foote, a professor of communications at the University of Washington as our guest today. And she has published a lot on organizing processes, digital media, practice-based theory. She serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Human Trafficking. And I met her through serving together on a steering committee. And now her book, Collaborating Against Human Trafficking, Cross-Sector Challenges and Practices, is out there so that you can access this resource. We'll post links on where you can get it. And I I want to start by reading to you the endorsement that I wrote before the book was even in print because I was so excited about the work that she was doing and I was allowed to read a manuscript and I felt very privileged, by the way, Kirsten, to have that opportunity. So I wrote, in the anti-trafficking world, the stakes are high. If we do not find effective paths to cooperation, victims will not be found and resources will be squandered. This book is like the map for a video game that shows all of the obstacles along the way. It is useful for students in the classroom who will gain a deeper understanding of principles before entering the field as well as for veteran practitioners who will nod their heads with recognition. The insight and tools will guide communities in building stronger networks that better serve the very people that need us to work together, victims of modern-day slavery and trafficking. So welcome, Dr. Kirsten Foote. Thank you. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. And would you kind of give us some background on why you felt like you needed to write this book? Well, sure. As a citizen, completely independently of my um, academic world, I had been paying attention to news in the mid-2000s and seeing more and more reports of various forms of slavery in our contemporary world and just found um, on myself increasingly puzzled and, um, and concerned and decided that I needed to look into this, um, this problem of human trafficking, both for this being a responsible citizen, but also with a lens on it of, you know, well, what's being done about this and how are, how are organizations working together? Because I do have a, a long history in studying organizing and network building. And as soon as I started to look into it, I realized that there, there actually was not much collaboration yet in the mid-2000s. There were 
um, some interesting alliances that had developed in the late 90s, um, but that had largely dissolved, and that there were a lot of calls for collaboration, a lot of, a lot of aspiration toward collaboration. So um, starting in 2008, 2009, I started to take a general look at you know, what people said about collaboration against human trafficking, um, mostly through organizational websites and, and reports they produced. And then in 2010 and 11, I decided to, to take a really deep look by examining this issue as it plays out, as people do the work of collaborating, which really involves just communicating with each other across organizations, across sectors. And I did that by traveling around the country um, to visit um, coalitions and task forces and community alliances in, um, in five or six different states and conducting interviews with people even in other states, asking them about their experiences in collaboration to sort out what, what is it that people find challenging, what do they do about those challenges, and what kind of patterns could I find as a social scientist about the the, um, the things that stall out collaborations, because over and over people say, oh, collaboration is so important, and in their next breath they say, and it's so tough. And so I wanted yeah. to get at that. Why, what is so tough about that, in particular in this realm of counter-human trafficking work? And well, I wanted to do it in a way that would be practical, that would actually help leaders in every sector, in business and law and government and law enforcement and community organizing and faith-based communities and, and healthcare, any sector. Any people sector. who work on this issue um, to be able to work together better and with greater understanding about the systemic tensions that are really underlying everything that, that people from very different sectors um, try to do when they when they work together. Well, one of the areas that really your your book helped me understand, um, I, I, I kind of frame this question with my experience. I became and continue to be frustrated because there's a new group popping up every day and they there is this coalition here and now we're starting another one here and i began to think that wow we don't know how to play nicely together and so if you're not going to do it my way i'm going to start my own i'm still going to call it a coalition but i want to be in charge and i think i can do a better job on um, how this, how I can bring people together and I get everybody to sit at the table. Um, what is the role of power in how coalitions, how collaboration can actually get diverted? And then how can I use power in order to protect a collaboration? Yeah, well, you're, you're bringing up an absolutely foundational dynamic because power is essential and inevitable and broadly misused and can be so constructively used. So it's, it is, uh, in many cases, the white elephant in discussions of collaboration. It's a, it's a word that very few people actually say out loud when they're talking about how the collaboration is organized or why it functions the way it does. And yet it is um, quite clearly... Uh, the the driving dynamic of what happens and who's at the table and who decides um, who's going to be at the table and what's going to happen. So these these questions of power, you're, you're bringing up a few different facets of it. Um, certainly those with power, whether through their, um, their status, the status of their profession, um, the status that they have through their financial resources, um, or through their expertise, those with power are able to be much more influential in, in critical decisions about who's at the table and what's going to happen. 
um, those with power who recognize the limits of their own perspectives, their own areas of expertise, are much more likely to recognize that there need to be really different kinds of perspectives also represented in, in a collaborative effort. And I saw several really great examples of that, of power sharing, of people saying from a place of significant status and influence, I know that, that my perspective on this is, is shaped by these kinds of things and it's limited in these kinds of ways and it's really vital to get people with other types of, of backgrounds and perspectives and sector um, expertise to be part of the discussion. That said, there, there, there's no way for any one coalition to um, include every single sector of, of a society without a really strong kind of central government or, or um, I don't mean government in, a, in the formal sense, but a, a central strong organizing um, body to that. And so there are some very large, say, metropolitan-wide or statewide coalitions that are very uh, broadly um, representative of, of every kind of sector in, in a state or in a city. And they are, those kinds of coalitions are very useful in, in some ways in terms of gathering broad kinds of need um, information, need assessment and strategy development. And there will also need to be smaller, more focused coalitions that take up some piece of it. And then there needs to be coordination between those smaller, more task-oriented um, coalitions or, or task forces and, and those broader um, uh, strategy developing ones. How, so I look to see power, I want to see power operating on several levels in, in a place of recognition of the fact that, that um, often those with power um, do not have the, the full perspective that they need to be able to use their power most constructively and therefore they have got to invite other people, typically those with less power, to be there alongside them informing what's going to happen. So can you, can you give me um, a tool or a model for that coordinating? How do I get those those outlier coalitions um, connected to the bigger picture? Well, there's no forcing it because one, one fundamental um, kind of principle of, of what makes collaborations work is, um, is a strong sense of intrinsic motivation and buy-in. Mm -hmm. There are coalitions that are, or, or you know, uh, alliances that are established by um, by government or by funders in the nonprofit or private sector that say, hey, our organizations are going to work together and we're going to task this and this person to be part of it. But even when that happens, um, when there's some kind of, of um, regulatory nature to the coalition, there still is, at, you know, there's been at some level some decision by some group of people that, you know, it would be really good if these organizations, these kinds of sectors would work together. So there has been some level of choice, but the individuals involved aren't necessarily the ones who chose to be part of it. Sometimes they get assigned to that as part of their job. But when, um, so I'm just saying it's hard to herd cats and, and it's hard to, to require people to be part of a coalition. But by making it, um, there are ways to make uh, coordination appealing. And, and one is simply logic. You know, all of us share a goal here of, of countering and slowing and, and mitigating and ideally stopping the exploitation of people through enslavement. And we have different strengths to bring to that. We have different facets of that that we're going to focus on. But nobody um, wants to waste resources when that's you know, when it's not necessary. So appealing to people's logic and their you know, value of efficiency is, is a really, um, those are both really strong ways of getting people to coordinate together. Um, but also making the, the actual experience of coordinating something that is validating 
to the different sectors and the organizations involved, I think is really key. So um, somebody, some organization that feels uh, forced into a coalition or only reluctantly accepted in a coalition and marginalized in that coalition, they are not going to want to invest in it or be supportive of it. And, uh, and it's, it's bad but true that that, that kind of um, let's call it, you know, mild forms of coercion or marginalization um, happen repeatedly. And so, so by getting back to well, what can power, what difference can power make positively, well, good leadership of a coalition um, is going to manifest itself in, in a fundamental recognition and validation of the need for all these different perspectives and all these different capacities. And good leadership is going to set out from the get-go norms and, and agreements about how members of a coalition are going to interact with each other and the kind of respect they're going to show. And maybe even down to the detail of how they're going to communicate the, the concerns and criticisms that they have um, when that's necessary. Those things, I think, are roles of you know, well-used power and constructive leadership for bringing together really diverse organizations and sectors. So it's, it's sort of making sure that everybody who's at the table does have um, space and voice in the process. Mm-hmm. And so if you are the one in that role as leader, so basically you hold that power, um, it is incumbent upon you to share that power or your purpose is going to be um, diverted just because of your own blind spot to those around you. Yes. Um, in, in the segment on power, one entire um, part that really attracted my attention was money and power. And I don't think we can have this conversation if we don't talk about the money, because there is often one of the um, most challenging aspects, and it is the elephant in the room, is we are all competing for the same funding resources. There is that sense that I don't want to share my my best practices with you because then you'll put them in yours and you'll get this money. So that competition for funding, how do you address that? Well, I address it in a few ways. It's um it is true in the in the um, public sector and government between government agencies, even within law enforcement agencies are competing for funding. Um, it's not just a nonprofit, non-governmental, um, sector-specific kind of challenge. It's also true in the private sector, of course, not in the same way in terms of grant funding, but competing for for customers in a certain vein. And so, um, so the the fact that that there is a, a you know large concern about funding and financial stability and the you know the the amount of resources available for anti-trafficking efforts that is that's just everywhere and over and over again. People in, in many sectors um, would tell me, you know, there's so much more we, we wish we could do, and we are limited by the lack of funds. And, and there are very real ways in which that's true. And there are also ways in which I came to see that there are things that could be done that would cost very little or nothing even, um, but would require a different way of, of working. And sharing ideas, sharing information, sharing um, that creative generative process of, well, what would be a new strategy here with an open hand toward and really who would be best to do that? That kind of, of collaborative work um, doesn't cost anything beyond whatever the cost of the time for people to sit in a room and do that together. 
but it can feel very costly to organizations for exactly the reason you mentioned, Sandy, where they feel like, well, if I share this idea here, then am I going to get, is my organization going to get credit for it? Am I personally going to get credit in my organization? And is my organization going to get credit for it? Will my organization be able to do it? Um, and there, I think there are ways of, of being strategic about what is shared in a brainstorming session, saying our organization would like to do this, and we would love to have others' input on that. Now, that's a way of marking an idea like, you know, we really do want to be at the lead in this, and opening up um, a, a platform for others to join in. And when that happens, new dimensions can be possible. And there could be multiple prongs to an initiative that the, that the or, uh, organization that came up with the idea originally might not have thought of. Um, so there would be an example of how, how that kind of, you know, how do we collaborate in order to um, both advance the aims that we have and to, uh, to preserve the, the essential um, contributions of a particular organization because there's no way to erase the fact that funding is often tied to the, the ideas of a proposal and the track record of an organization. Mm. So I'm not in any way painting a, a Pollyanna um, picture in my book that, oh, you know, we could just all share all our ideas and that'll make everything happen. No, that's not true. There really are um, ways in which organizations need to create distinctive contributions and, and profiles, but there are also ways for them to do that in a gen genuinely um, collaborative spirit that makes space for others to partake of that same um, initiative and may often end up uh, scaling up the, the, si the size of funding, the amount of funding that could be available to the initiative. I'm so glad that you've addressed power and, and money in the book, Kirsten. It's it's such a powerful force. As we've talked about on the show a lot, Sandy, the economic forces really do drive a lot of this um, for better or for worse. And it, as you were talking, it was reminding me, I was trying to think of where the quote was from, and I just pulled it up online here from a, a, qu a quote from Upton Sinclair, and forgive the the gender bias in the quote, but uh, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. and. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that in the context of what you've just said is that we all mean so well, and yet when the line item on the budget or the funding is affected or the salary is affected because of a different choice we might make, it becomes really challenging. And so I'm, I, I was really curious about something you said earlier. You said that there that some people are willing to to share that power or willing to look at themselves and to say, you know, I don't have or I, I don't need to have power in this area. I was really interested in your research and in talking with different leaders of the people who are in the organizations who are able to make that transition and able to have the courage to look beyond um, just the status quo. What have you found the difference with those people that, that allows them to do that? I think it's, it comes down to a difference in their capacity for vision, visionary thinking. When people um, can... When leaders can um, look beyond, you know, they absolutely need to self-assess their organization. What are our capacities? What can we do? What will our be our, you know, what are our distinctive strengths that we have to bring to that? And those leaders who can do that and look beyond to say, and what else could happen in our sphere of influence, in our sector of of business, or in our um, division of of government, um, you know, agency suite, or in our nonprofit world or in a geographical region, if all these other sectors could come together here, what else is possible? And, and leaders who can do both an, an organizational assessment and a broader needs and opportunity assessment and see, see real opportunities for other organizations and, and 
uh, leaders from other sectors even to bring their strengths to bear and invite other people into that bigger vision, uh, that is what I see as being transformative. When, when leaders do that, the whole dynamic changes. It does not erase the, um, the very real competition for funding within a sector, but it does create space and it creates a, a really a generative environment in which people are thinking together beyond their individual organization or agency's um, needs and, and strengths and constraints and thinking about what could be possible if we pooled our, our expertise and our ideas and our resources and, and connected uh, you know, each organization's areas of need with other types of resources. Well, and so some of the seeing or leaders seeing themselves as brokers of of relationship and of resource exchange mm. beyond their yeah. own organization. Yeah, I like that term, brokers. Um, I I feel too like especially foundations and funders, donors, they can have a key piece in promoting this kind of collaboration, so that they tie funds to that enhanced collaborative model. And it, for instance, um, just um, an oversimplified look at how federal task forces are put together. You don't get a, t- a grant for the law enforcement side unless you have also have a partner that's going to have a grant for the victim side. And those kinds of models have to, are more complicated. And you have people from sectors that don't even know how to talk to each other sitting at the same table, but they can't get up and walk away because the funds to make what's happening are tied to sitting at the same table. So yes, that's right. And that happens from private sector donors as well. So there I've seen private foundations, some very large scale and some relatively small, um, you know, family foundations create some of the same kinds of, let's call them incentives. Uh, that also sometimes function as requirement. In other words, I've seen several foundations that make it, you know, we will not fund a project or an organization that is not also working with other organizations and ideally not also funded by another organization. So to state that in the positive, their funders, donors, private foundations say, we will fund organizations that have a track record of collaboration. They get to choose who they're collaborating with, but you know, we want to see that they, they know how to collaborate well. And we will fund projects or initiatives or organizations that other funders are also funding. And mm. so in there, there's like a double layer there of collaboration incentivizing that's very interesting. It breaks down a bit when, and I've seen this sometimes, when a funder determines for an organization or an agency, these are the other um, entities with whom you will collaborate. Go figure out how to do that. Oh. That's a really high stakes move. It it has happened. Sometimes it works. Often it's something that um, that leaders, at least here in the U.S., kind of balk against. Uh, we want our freedom of choice about who we're going to collaborate with. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> because so, that almost there, but I smacks not, of there. There still is a place and a time for that. So I would not say you know it's it's not a it, it is a an, an important strategy. Sometimes it's it's a little bit coercive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Quite so. baldly so. And and there, I would still say there are times and places where that's really important to do. But it is a high risk move, and there's there are you know, many other layers of complication around that. So um, I I don't I want to use our time really well. And there's another area. This is the Global Center for Women and Justice, and um, people have often asked me about. Dave's role on our podcast. And it's like, because I want to model men and women doing this well together. 
And I love the fact that you have a chapter on race and gender. So I would love to hear from you how that emerged in your research to be such a significant piece. Sure. Well, I can tell you I did not start out imagining that I was going to write about race and gender and collaboration. It just wasn't something I thought from the beginning would be really important. And very quickly into the fieldwork, I realized there was no way I could ignore it. That, um, that patterns of race and gender in, in who the victims of human trafficking are here in the U.S. are, are quite stark. And in a nutshell, um, overwhelmingly, the victims of human trafficking are, are people of color and the majority of them are female. So given that, then when I looked around every meeting I attended, and I attended well over 70 meetings across the country of anti-trafficking um, coalitions and, and uh, multi-sector discussions about the problem. Overwhelmingly, the majority of people in the room were women um, and they were white. And the leaders of many of the organizations that had the most power and money were men and white. And that, that started to become very interesting as I watched the dynamics around that. And it, realized, it, was, it was something that I realized that very little of the, the collaboration, you know, inter-organizational collaboration literature from the academic world and the business world, very few um, studies in that realm recently have actually dealt with this. There are more coming out. And so I found some great people to think with about um, the dynamics I was seeing literally in the last couple of years just as I was finishing up the book. But, um, but it's not something that gets talked a lot about in general, much less in the anti-trafficking. So I really, as far as I know, this book is the first book about anti-trafficking efforts to name race and gender dynamics as, as something that's going on and that's important and that actually affects collaboration. So what I saw is not just, a, oh, you know, let's count noses and see what color they are, or whether they're male or female, or however they appear. Um, but let's let's think about well, what what difference does it make if the majority of people in the room are are female and um, and they're missing a male perspective, or if the majority of people in the room are are Caucasian and they're they're not listening to they don't have the opportunity in that meeting. People of color aren't there to inform the ideas and the plans and strategies that are being laid out. I started to see how there were pers um, persistent blindnesses. Um, in the kinds of discussions that we're having because of the limitations in the perspective. And so my overall call in that chapter is not a, a quota system, make sure you have X number of every ethnicity and make sure you have 50-50 you know, minimum, but to say let's become reflective about what happens when, we are, um, when, when a, a group of people are skewed and overrepresenting one or two kind of demographic um, positionalities and, and really um, not paying attention to or hearing from people there. And you'll see in the book that there, um, some of the, to me, some of the most moving interactions I had were with black men who um, came to me privately, every time privately, and shared what it felt like to them to be um, black male abolitionists, people really concerned about human trafficking in rooms that are predominantly white women, um, and how they perceive themselves as being suspected of being former pimps or being involved in exploitative practices or just clashing, what are you doing here? And, and several of them saying, you know, I'm a dad, I'm a citizen, I'm a business person, and here are some things that I, I think I could contribute and, and I feel simultaneously like a neon sign in this room and, and invisible at the same time. And I don't know even how to find a, a place in which to articulate my views and, and what I'd like to contribute here. And that to me is a tragedy because there is so much um, that those individuals and that many other people who are um, 
underrepresented for one reason or another, you know, have to share and have to, to give to the anti-trafficking movement. And there is a, a marked lack of conversation about what it, what it takes and why it's important to, um, to involve these multiple perspectives. And that is a segue to an entirely um, separate podcast that we will have to set up. Um, my experiences mirror yours so much, Kirsten, mm. with um, African-American males who um, come to me and say, you know, we have this in common. And I find, I find my allies at the table are often um, representing that particular perspective. And I want people to um, access some of the resources that are linking our Atlantic slave trade history through the, um, the Underground Railroad Museum Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, where they've taken the Underground Railroad and the museum on, on our own history of, of slavery. And now they've added the modern component of what does modern day slavery look like in human trafficking. And connecting those issues is part of um, how we bring this into our collective imagination and, and reflection. So yes. Kirsten, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is available through any major bookstore and online in various places. Um, it's available through the publisher's website, roman.com, and through Amazon. So it's very easy to find. And you're kind of creating your own coalition, um, a, a community online. Can you tell us about that? Well, I'm, I'm curating resources on collaborating across sectors and against human trafficking. What I mean by that is I'm I'm building out the collaboration resources section of the website that uh, was produced for the book called collaboratingagainsttrafficking.info. And in the collaboration resources section, I am um, uh, eliciting uh, resources from anybody who wants to send me a suggestion and, and putting up links and documents and, um, and suggestions there in several different categories and tools that coalitions can use and in books and other um, recommended readings and case studies on multi-sector collaboration from a variety of issue areas. Um, there are great groups around the country that are working on around this notion of collective impact and what it does it take, what does it look like for people from the private sector and, um, and, and public sector and nonprofits to work together on, on sticky social problems, difficult social problems, um, like education reform and, um, and, and early childhood care and lots of these things. They have, their various organizations have created some really great case studies of successful impacts, successful interventions, and, and failed projects, which are also very instructive to learn from. And so my collaboration resources section includes a link to some of those case studies because they're great for coalitions to discuss together, even if it doesn't look like the issue um, is the same as human trafficking. There's still really, really important insights to draw that we can pull across there. Well, my so those are just a few of the tools there, um, and I'll be growing that as people send me more ideas. I want to assure you that my students will be accessing those tools in classroom assignments at Vanguard University. Terrific. Um, Dave, uh, Kirsten, this has been such an exciting conversation. Um, we'll put all these links in the show notes, and Kirsten, we're going to have to have you come back. Thank you. I'd love to. 
Thanks well, so much for this to talk together. Oh, the honor is ours, Kirsten. Thanks so much for all the resources. And as Sandy mentioned, we'll have all of these listed on the website. And maybe today's conversation has triggered a question for you on collaboration or something else that's come out of uh, Kirsten's thinking and her research. I hope you'll take a moment to drop us a line so we can address that on a future episode. And you can reach us at gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University of Southern California. And you can also reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. And again, uh, Kirsten's book, Collaborating Against Human Resources, Cross-Sector Challenges and Practices. Check it out. Sandy, I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, Dave.